What is crack-a-lackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am the highly, if superfluously caffeinated, Danfa Valley, coming at you with good friend and spectacular basketball writer and coach and draftnik and just brilliant mind all around, Adam Spinella. Follow him on Twitter at the box and one underscore spelled exactly as it sounds and looks. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can't see the underscore I'm realizing in the way his Twitter handle is, but it's the box and one underscore. He is awesome. Subscribe to his Substack, the box and one check out his YouTube channel, the box and one as well publishes great draft and NBA content, frequent guest, long time guest now of the podcast. I don't have to apologize when he comes on anymore because he's been on enough that he knows what he's getting into spins. How the heck are you? Dan, my, my, my old friend, you little bastard, it's great to see you. Thank you for that way, way too long of an introduction there. But uh, no, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here talking about all things Summer League, NBA, NBA Draft. I mean, look, basketball never stops anymore, right? The, there's, there's always news breaking. There's always rumors going on. There are games that are meaningful being played. And I, I for one, find it really fun because, like you, I'm an over-caffeinated workaholic. But, like, it's – this is year round now, and we always have something to talk about, and I'm glad we're going to be able to do it right here with you in the Hardwood Knox studio. Wait, are you copping to using caffeine all of a sudden? Word on the street was you do not. Yeah, I, it, I, so, you know, getting through uh, June was, was kind of a tough month on our end. Uh, wedding, a move, and the NBA draft while coaching games and working the normal full-time job, I needed to start caffeine a little bit. Uh, I was at probably like 1.2 grams a day and I have successfully cut myself down to about four to like 400 to 600 milligrams, which I realize is still a lot. Yeah. Uh, I will say there's a lot of caffeine in pre-workouts, even if you're taking pre-workouts that have stuff like, in, so that's where a lot of it came from, but it was, it got to the point where I was like, right, this needs to, this needs to stop. And you know what the wake up call was? I was talking to Jake Fisher and I know that guy works a lot too. And he's just like, no, I don't use caffeine. I'm like, WTF, I need yeah. to cut this down. I, I, w- I avoided it as a college coach. I avoided it mostly through my first year here as a high school head coach. And now like, the last month, I've just had to start doing it just to get through the day. And like, I, It's terrible for me. It makes me sweat like Dom DeLuise. Like I'm just dripping. From my <laughs> face. So, uh, probably not going to last very long, but at least for the last month, I've needed it to get through. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you handled everything that you did. Um, or why you even scheduled your wedding around the NBA draft. That was, that was a, that was a choice caps lock choice on your part. What a moron. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but congratulations. You are this is the first time you're on the podcast since you have been wedded. So congratulations to you and the missus and on the new, new house, you look fly in this podcasting studio that you are building. I see the basketball mm-hmm. and we know there's going to be photos and jerseys. Eventually I'm excited to see it unfold. I wish yeah, I could say getting- everything. Oh, go ahead. No, we're getting there. I mean, the, this is the Larry Bird signed uh, basketball back there. So got to find a spot for that and got a, a litany of Michael Jordan posters. So if anybody ever tries to ask me on a podcast, if I'm a LeBron or an MJ guy, they'll uh, they'll know the answer right away. Is Frank Nielakina correct? Good one. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could say I'm as excited to talk about Summer League. I do very much enjoy Summer League. I have been asked many times by my employer to go. And I always tell them, no, Um, I just can't get into it as much as others do for some reason. I don't know. Maybe I just have like fatigue from the draft going into free agency, but I do enjoy being able to go and look at some of these players. And so I figured we could start with the, the top guys or the guys that uh, people are most interested in. And so we begin in just summer league impressions. I want to hear from you. And we'll start with, I guess what became the surprise number one pick, even though he was number one on your your big board, Paolo Bancaro, what have you made of the time that he played for the Orlando Magic before getting shut down? Yeah, anytime you're a rookie and you get shut down after, what, two games, that uh, that says a lot about how much they value you and, and what you can bring to the table. I was incredibly impressed by Paolo. I think that there are still areas for every single one of these guys to continue to tighten up, particularly for a guy like Paolo, who's going to have a large role in the NBA level. His flaws become a little bit more apparent. Um you know, there were a lot of concerns pre-draft about his defense and about his three-point shooting range. I think hopefully the two games of summer league action showed that those were a little bit overblown. Uh, the, the concern with Paolo, it's not necessarily decision-making, but it's the speed at which he makes decisions. He's a very good passer, 
but a couple of the flaws that he had, he had an eight turnover game in Las Vegas was that sometimes it can be a little harder for him to pick up his dribble uh, and make that read. He wants to dribble it one more time before he ends up making a pass to somebody else. And, and you got to be more of a proactive than a reactive passer if you're going to be a, a top one or two option on an NBA team because defenses clog the floor, they want to jump W, all these different things. So in order for him to get a little bit better at that, he's just got to be faster with his recognition and, and making the proactive pass. But everything scoring-wise that you could want to see from him, he showed mismatch posts, strength on the interior, good three-point shooting, isolation moves that are you know Carmelo Anthony-esque, really good passing, competitive defense, great in transition and in the open floor. He's the real deal, folks, and we saw that on full display just in two games. I was impressed by his defensive stamina, where I was prepared for him to just be awful based off what some people were saying. That was pleasantly surprising, and there is some anarchy to, like, I guess his processing speed, but, like, when the spin moves come together and it's not, like, discombobulated, oh, my God, it's, like, explosive ballet. Is yeah. what it's just like he's been a joy to watch, and I think, like, I'm just he was. You probably convinced me that he should have been the number one player in the draft, but I'm like just convinced now that like this dude is going to be incredible, and that the Magic now have their directional pole star. Also, took was two games, and I didn't even watch the full two games. Um, I watched his possession breakdowns for one of the games, not the one against Houston, the other one. So I'm sold. Paolo Bancaro is good. That's my hot take. That's yeah, and, and I think if you're Orlando, it gives you the faith and the clarity of how to build the rest of the roster for the summer. Like I, I think that summer league is positioned in the, in the NBA calendar and the way it is so that the big name free agents can go first and the guys that are priority and need to chase the bag. Then you have summer league. And from there, you try to figure out how you're going to reshape the, the margins of the roster, a.k.a. do we go after that veteran for maybe a little bit more than he's worth just so that we get him? Or can we trust a rookie to potentially slide into that role? Did that second-year guy take the next step in order to become a dependable rotation guy at the NBA level? So, you know, Summer League is great for getting more of a glimpse into that. I think for Orlando, they always knew Paolo was going to be the guy. But what role is best for him? How does his playmaking, you know, translate to the NBA level? And I think what you see from this is they now have an abundance of riches when it comes to playmakers with the ball in their hands where an R.J. Hampton, a Markel Fultz, somebody can become a little bit more dispensable and, and be more of a trade asset as opposed to, hey, we just need as many good young players as we can. Like, no, now the identity is starting to take shape of what you need around your best guys, which to me are Paolo, Suggs, and Franz Wagner. And having the one player that you can cite, like that's who we need to tailor the talent around him is huge. And that's what they still lacked, I think, even coming out of this season – Franz Wagner was really good. I still remain incredibly high on Jalen Suggs, but his rookie year was topsy-turvy enough, I think in part because of the role he did have to shoulder on, on offense to where it's still to be determined whether he would be that guy. Paolo just looks like, okay, now we have someone who we start to flesh out the decisions for the rest of the roster around. That's just, that's big time. It's, it's like, I, you know, I always say you draft for your star player. You draft for the guy that's going to be the number one option in the alpha because even if you miss – that's still the hardest guy to get for your roster. It's worth taking that swing on. That's why Paolo was number one in this class for me. It was less about the, the skill gap between him and Chet Holmgren. It was more about the role that he fills being harder to find and, and more impactful. And, and that's why, you know, I think Orlando made the right decision. And hopefully and we are not seeing just two games of absurd play and then he fades into the back. Like this is not an Anthony Randolph situation where he's going to be a little bit different. Like, he, he was he was fantastic, and I'm telling you all, it translates on an NBA floor. Speaking of Chet Holmgren, I, my fellow calfless and quadless uh, buddy, Chet Holmgren, uh, I was just worried sort of looking at his physical makeup, and I still was, like, how are, are his screens going to mean anything during regular season NBA games? But, like, I'm kind of just sold on everything else, where his, like, spatial awareness away from the ball on offense is fantastic. He's, a, like, a shot-blocking presence um and he can get up the floor and get those types of contests i was really impressed with sort of the hints of okay we know that if there's enough space that he could have dribbled into threes but like there was i can't remember which game it was he had like a sidestep three going to his left and it just looked so fluid yeah. i am all in on on chet holmgren i do question though whether just his frame we saw Giannis fill out Giannis looked like a 
you know, when he came into the league, he looked like a spaghetti noodle as well. Uh, but like, that would be my only question, but what have you thought about what, what he has shown in, in summer league? I mean, so I, I try to err on the side of his mental makeup as opposed to the physical makeup guys take some time to, to turn into what they turn into physically at the NBA level. He's still a teenager. Um, the big thing with Chet is that he's unique and he's competitive. So the uniqueness matters because what type of player guards him, right? Like that's the one thing for me. If you put a really small guy on him and try to undercut his dribble, he's skilled enough to hit those right hooks in the post and be able to shoot over the top of guys. If you put a, a bigger guy on him, he's long and quick enough to be able to go past him and separate with the dribble. So I, I think that I worry less about Chet physically, especially in the offensive end, because I know the skill level and the size is really there. But it's his mental makeup and the competitiveness that has me really dialed in, that he knows he's a smaller guy. He doesn't shy away from contact, not one bit. And I love that about him. Um, the, the NBA game fits him so much better than the college game, just because there are less, uh, I should say, there are more fluid roles when you get to the NBA, right? Like you're you're not just saying, hey, you're a four or you're a five and you run up this lane and this is exactly like, – College coaches love having those strict roles because it's the easiest way for them to be able to teach the game effectively in the time constraints that they have, particularly with guys who have skill gaps in their game. The, the leash is off for Chet Holmgren here. Like he is rebound and run. He's playing point guard. The guys are inbounding to him. He's going behind the back and doing combo moves, step back threes. He's pulling in transition whenever he wants. Like this is the idealized version of Chet where if you have this much offensive potency, to go with how skilled of a, a rim protector and unique of a defender he is like the body stuff can't scare you away because he's so damn productive in the minutes that he's on the floor. Like if he only plays 72 games a season and he has to be out a couple for a bang up injury here, or this or that, I'd take him every day because he's just, he's that damn good. And you mentioned he's so young, like his body can still develop and it's just different when you're going to have, all the personnel that's associated with an NBA team around you and you have more time to focus on your, you know, diet and your body development. And even in my notes, I did wrote, doesn't look like he has deltoids, but his shoulder strength around the basket was surprising at times. I don't, again, I didn't see it translate so much to screen setting, but it, in the current NBA, they're like teams feel like they just react to the idea of screens rather than like the type of screen themselves screens themselves. So I'm all in on him and he's, he's been super fun to watch for, um Jabari Smith Jr. I came into this thinking that he I was higher on his shot creation than this defensive versatility that everyone had touted. That has officially flip-flopped. Uh I think it turned for me probably before the Spurs game, but like his defense in that Spurs game, like holy, holy hell. Um, he's like disruptive, he can be intuitive, and he's like at the point of attack. I almost feel like for the Rockets, he might not have been the player they thought they were gonna get but he feels like the better fit for the current roster. If you wanted someone to play with Shangun, potentially Holmgren could have been that with all of that said, his offense has made me not worried, but it feels like, Oh, perhaps this is going to be more of a play finisher type guy than I initially thought it was summer. It's summer league. I want to make that clear, but some of the shot selection and then just, I was convinced. And when people ask me on radio shows about him, I'm like, yeah, the shot creation is going to be fine. And I've just completely flip flopped on my impressions of Jabari Smith jr. I was on the play finisher side of things. Uh, definitely thought that he's going to be reliant it's on a guard to get the ball. And like, look, Jalen Green's the perfect guard for him to pair with because he puts so much pressure on the rim just as, as an athlete that it's going to create more catch-and-shoot looks for Jabari. That's what he needs. And even at Summer League, he's, I don't want to say played out of position, but he's going to be asked to be more of a – like that's just not who his ideal role is going to be. He can hit – some mid-range pull-ups when he's chased off the line. He does have the ability to shoot over the top of guys, but you don't want to rely on that for offense. So I think that Houston did a great job with this draft. They added three really good high-caliber players. But if the expectation is that Jabari Smith is going to be as good of an offensive piece as Jalen Green, I think that that's just unrealistic expectations. Um, he showed – that when he's knocking down shots and and they are going in, like he struggled the first two games and then his shot ended up falling. He played well, but the defensive stuff doesn't go away. And that's why he's still, you know, a top two or three pick by almost every measure in this year's draft class, because he is a very, very good defender. And that's something that 
I agree with your take. Like, holy crap, he was good against the Spurs. Like, holy crap. He was really, really good in that game. And if you're Houston, you've got to be as excited about that as you are anything else because of the fit of the roster and because if you're going to be a shooter, you've got to find ways to impact the game when the shot's not falling. He clearly does that. I would love to see a lineup in Houston of Jabari Smith Jr. and Usman Garuba as your front court. Maybe even let's sprinkle in uh, Kenyon Martin Jr. and Jay Sean Tate go super big and have Jalen Green run point guard. I don't think that that lineup would be particularly good offensively, but I would love to see it. And I just I want to see Garuba so bad this year. Uh, I know that he wasn't like part of their immediate picture last season, but I would love the idea of the defense. And just because Jabari Smith Jr in theory should be he's a lot more polished on offense than Garuba is like maybe there's more of a balance there to be struck if you try out that front court pairing I've I've long said that should be their end game lineup right there when they when Shengun gets played off the floor a little bit go with Garuba and Jabari and just surround Jalen Green with shooters I I I fave it I I enjoy that uh Keegan Murray so I came on this podcast immediately after the draft and I was less critical. I made jokes at the King's expense because it's, it's the Kings. Like I, I had to, um, but I did say that I don't even necessarily think that they were wrong uh, that I could see. And now I see it even more before we get into this. Like this isn't going to be, Oh, they drafted Marvin Bagley instead of Luka Doncic. If anything, and I'm, well, we're talking about different caliber of players here, but sort of how the Trey young Luka Doncic conversation. Yeah. Doncic is a lot better, but the, the either or has become almost a footnote. Um, like having that discussion. I don't think they missed the boat there because Keegan Murray is so good. Um, but I do think the Kings do not deserve the benefit of the doubt. They have not earned it. So if people want to doubt them, I do think they would have criticized any pick the Kings made though. So I'm going to be fair and say, they've been like, whoa, you have Jay Nivey and De'Aaron Fox and Davion Mitchell on the same team. That's fucking stupid. Hashtag Kangs. Oh, you passed on Jay Nivey. Hashtag Kangs anyway. So I've been very impressed with what I've seen from, from Keegan Murray. I Again, this is coming from someone who was not you know, got knee deep into draft coverage at some point. Maybe was never waist deep. That's for sure. Uh, he knows how to move off the ball, and I think he's probably been a little bit better defensively than I was expecting. And the one question I have, and I didn't see it written anywhere, is is like his jumper sometimes like too far out in front of him, where it feels like it could potentially be blocked at some. That was the only qualm I had. But watching him move off the ball and sort of relocate or just know where to be when he doesn't have it or how to get to a spot where someone's going to give it to him. He's been so, so good, if not revelatory. Incredibly smart player. Um, really, really well-rounded on the offensive end of the floor that allows his game. I think his game just pops really well in the summer league because he is more mature and polished and smart than a lot of the guys that are on the floor. You know, summer league defensive rotations are, um, how do they say it? Not good. So, you know, like it, guys who have slower shots tend to find areas to get them off. I think that there's something to the fact that he needs to be a little bit more square, even though he's hitting some movement threes, like there's still a little bit more like chest and shoulders to the rim. Um, he's just very good. You're right. This is very different than passing on one guy for a generational star. I think it's unfair to say, what happens with Ivy is going to determine the success of the Kings pick here at four. Like Keegan Murray is going to be a really solid player, but I also think that of all of the four guys we've talked about most, his performance in summer league might be attributed to the caliber of play around him, as opposed to the direct translation of his game to the NBA level, because again, a little less space to operate a few smarter guys that are on the floor, a little bit more size and, and athleticism, like, some of his first step stuff may not work as much. Some of his shooting avenues may not be there as well. Um, really good role player. Really, really good role player. Understand him going fourth overall to the Kings, both in terms of roster fit. And I think it's defensible that he'd be the best player available. I love Jaden Ivey. I've been very clear on that for the last few months. Like I had him above Jabari Smith on my final big board. So absolutely love Jaden Ivey. But I don't think that Keegan is going to be He's he's a guy that can't be a strikeout. You you can't whiff with with Keegan Murray. And at some point for Sacramento, with what they're building, with what the franchise is, and and I think the the value that he brings just as a floor spacer, it it's going to work out well for everybody involved. I I think what kind of impressed me, and I know you mentioned like some of the first step stuff. Uh, I had seen the best way that I saw a phrase. I think it was Jason Maples on Twitter said that summer league is for shot creators. 
And a lot of what has impressed me the most about Keegan Murray has literally nothing to do with that. And the fact that he stood out to me while doing those things, also while you just mentioned, surrounded by what relative will be the NBA uh, inferior teammates, is almost even more encouraging. And so there's a chance that the Kings, even if they weren't 100% right, there's just a chance, a very strong chance, if not overwhelming likelihood, that they weren't wrong. And I'm excited to see what he looks like in an offense that's going to have Barnes, Sabonis, and De'Aaron Fox. Uh, as Matt Moore of the Action Network phrased this, um, I don't know what this defense, this is me saying this, I don't know what the defense is going to look like, but as Matt Moore said, there are worse avenues to explore than um, De'Aaron Fox, Sabonis, and a fuck ton of shooting was the the word that he used. So I'm, I'm like fascinated to see the Kings this season. I've just been really impressed with how rock solid Keegan Murray has been. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. So I'm, I'm all in for watching the uh, the fuck ton shooting Kings. <laughs> um, speaking of Keegan, uh, speaking of Jay Ivey, excuse me, how we've got these natural transitions coming. I started to see before his injury what people were talking about in the comparisons to John Morant, not as a scorer. It still feels like there's a jaggedness to his offense, although he hit he hit like this step back three going left. I can't what was it like a was it a Wizards game? I don't even everything is all blending together for me. Um it was yeah, it was a Wizards game, but the passing, like the feel there, I totally get that. What have you thought of him and how maybe like you know, we saw basically the regular season pistons for at least a game in summer league. Uh, but what have you thought about him and maybe even just some larger thoughts on the pistons in general here? I uh, love what the Pistons are doing. Really, really do. And, and part of that is because I think Cade Cunningham's the best prospect to come out in the last three drafts. So, um, you know, that, that helps when you have him on your team. I think what, what I saw from Ivy first and foremost was a confidence with the ball in his hands that wasn't unable to, it was unable to be unleashed at Purdue because of the way that they ran offense. Like, you know, he was more of an off ball guard. They played through post-ups a ton didn't get consistent pick and roll reps. And you could see in the summer league here, the idea was to play through him a little bit more. And, and he looked really good in that regard. I agree. There's still uh, a little bit of clunk that goes into how he changes gears in the mid range, the pull up areas, like just some of the scoring cleanliness into his game, but he's a good enough shooter. He puts tremendous pressure on the rim and look out in transition. I, I think the unsung hero for a guy like Jaden Ivey, is having Jalen Duran as a lob threat partner and as a rim protector at the other end who can alter shots, rebound, and outlet plays so that he can play in transition a little bit more. It's a great partnership, and I think it's only going to be strengthened when they add Cade Cunningham to that as really your, your primary option when the game slows down in the half court. And then you can see the rest of the roster is going to be about shooting. More Sadiq Bays more Isaiah livers, like guys that can just come in here and, and knock down and, and give spacing. I think that Detroit has a really good blueprint in place. Isaiah livers is going to get his shot off and he had a post up against Washington that made me actually like drop my jaw. Uh, so they're, they're going to be super fun. Do you trust Jaden Ivy's like perimeter touch? Yeah. Um, when he's set, I don't really trust it that much in the mid range area. But, um, you know, if teams go under screens and he gets himself square, I think he's pretty good in that area. He loves the step back with the ball in his hands. And I think that he's got pretty easy mechanics to the point where uh, he'll be okay as a spot-up guy too. Caden Sharp, so he gets – or, excuse me, I skipped over one. Benedict Matherin, apologies. I had no idea that there was, like, this much off-the-dribble juice to him. What is he, like, going to do for the Pacers here? And it feels like – even if they get Aiton, and that's something we could talk about later, there's like room to explore what Benedict Matherin can do on the ball there. And so I'm hoping they give him, it's always iffy to me with Rick Carlisle. I'm hoping they give him that agency from day one. Yeah, there, there was, um, there was a, a point when I went back and watched Arizona film in like March or April this year watching Matherin. I was like, this guy's a lot better off the bounce than he gets credit for. Um, He's still developing as a passer. His handle, like he's somewhat comfortable with it, but he's got to tighten up a lot of different things to be able to get through tight spaces. So he's going to be a work in progress. But yes, long term, I think that he can turn into a guy like that because he's athletic enough to put pressure on the rim and he shoots it really well from three. So he's going to collapse defenses. He's going to get chased off the line. Like he doesn't have to be somebody that you run pick and roll after pick and roll for. Tyrese Halliburton can come off of a high ball screen. 
kick to Matherin, if he gets run off the line, you know a good decision is going to be made or he's going to score it more frequently than he doesn't. Um, huge fan of Matherin. Like, this dude's got, like, cojones, man. Like, he is super, super confident in his game and his offensive arsenal. I love seeing that from a guy like him. I heard a lot of feedback from people around the league that the final month of the pre-draft process, he ended up being somebody that opened a lot of eyes to what he can do more with the ball in his hands than he got to play with at Arizona. And uh, I think Summer League thus far has been a pretty good glimpse into what he can be. But more than that, like we talked about you know, the, the Kangs surrounding just a really good point guard and a big man with shooting. I think that's what Indiana ends up doing, whether it's DeAndre Ayton or not. Uh, Halliburton and a big man pick and roll with all of the shooters that they have. Duarte, Matherin, Jalen Smith, Buddy Heald. Like, it's, a, it's a recipe to a shortcut on offense. And you, you mentioned Rick Carlisle. That's the X factor here. Can he buy into that? Can he sit on his hands and not dial up spider to Y banana for the fifth time coming out of the, like, the third quarter? Like, no, just let your good player have the ball in his hands and go. That's why I'm almost rooting for them not to get Aiton because I don't want them to like have someone else in the pecking order where I think they would look to slow things down, run stuff through Aiton. I think that's what Aiton wants. Uh, and so having Turner, who probably wants to do that too, keeping him, he's still more of a, a niche offensive player. And after seeing Matherin in the summer league, like whoever the Pacers think is better, I hope that they get. I want DeAndre Aiton to get paid. He's young, whatever. But I also just want to see Benedict Matherin get reps on reps on reps on reps on the ball in addition to everything else he does after watching him in summer league. And I think it's more likely that happens if you have miles Turner or maybe you still trade him, but there's a different center. Like if it's, if it's Isaiah Jackson or Jalen Smith is your five, Gogo Bataze, it feels like it's more likely to happen if it's one of them, as opposed to you spending a lion's share of your minutes next to Aiden and Halliburton. Yeah. I mean, look, we've talked about the top six right here. I, I'm encouraged by every guy that we saw. Obviously Jabari didn't shoot the ball well, but the way he defended consistently was really important. I think every one of these top six is going to be a solid player. Like I, I don't foresee a lot of busts within this group. Shaden Sharp, I think it's fitting. The one shot he hit was like a basically like a circus fadeaway on the baseline, or the one shot that I saw he hit before he gets injured. Uh, what is the? Uh, it's basically what is the impact of his injury on the regular season Blazers? But I really want to ask you, what can he bring to a team that is very clearly like trying to win now? Still, like how do you go about developing the type of player that he is? within the makeup that the Blazers have laid. Yeah, it's um, I think the most similar way to put it is watch what Golden State did with Kaminga this year. Uh, give him a super defined role. Make sure he does those things well first before you add anything else to his plate and make sure that you limit his minutes and have the understanding that he's not going to get a ton of reps. Like the, this is where, you know, if the Blazers had a G League team, <clears throat> sorry, did I say that out loud? Uh, like, you'd be able to go through a different means of development with a guy like him. But I don't think that there ever really was an expectation that he would be a rotation caliber player this year. Um, and I don't think that that would make this a bad pick. I think that it's just you take the best player available and you know what he can turn into eventually. He's going to need some time and seasoning, and that's not a bad thing. Summer league is the area when you find out how much. And unfortunately – we didn't get to see how much seasoning Shaden needs before he can contribute anything. So my best guess here is that they stick him into more of like a secondary tertiary playmaker off the bench for eight to 12 minutes a night. See what he gives you there. Make sure he defends on a reliable level and then maybe give him a little bit more to bite off. If he, if he succeeds in it, I would love to talk about Dyson Daniels and Jeremy's home, but we can't Daniels barely played uh, at least his ankle injury seems to be a non-issue. That's fine. So in was in health and safety protocols. We did have, I asked you this question. We also had a question from a listener other than the top five picks who has been the most impressive to you so far. And I'll even scale that to outside the lottery, outside the top 10, since we basically just rolled through most of those. Yeah. I mean, if, if we're going outside the lottery, I'll leave off the guy that outside of Paolo and Chet was the most impressive for me. Jalen Williams for Oklahoma city. I was blown away by how well he played. Um, but outside the lottery here, I, I liked both Houston guys, Tari Eason and Ty Ty Washington and not just how they played, but they're fit together. They're really, really good. Uh, Tari does a lot of little things. His energy never stops. He's always moving. He's, his hands are the strongest things I've ever seen. Um, and Ty Ty Washington just, Incredibly smart and cerebral player. I was also impressed by Josh Minot. 
for Minnesota. He showed a lot more offensive polish on the perimeter than I was expecting. Incredibly raw this last season at Memphis. The growth that he's undergone in the last few months, or at least the comfort level that he showed playing on a pro floor, was important. And then don't sleep on Jabari Walker for Portland either. He's had some really good games. Uh, I Ty Ty Washington specifically plays. I know people worry about his size. He plays so much bigger than he actually is. Like you don't feel like he's that tiny. I actually have three names of my own, so I, that might shock you. Uh, one of them we already discussed. I'm just. Isaiah Livers, he's going to get that three ball off. And I think the, the Pistons, as long as he stays healthy, need to just play him right away and cut him loose. I still believe, and I promise I had this penciled in before we're recording this after uh, he went off for Charlotte. I don't think the Hornets are going to be the team that maximize him, but I'm in love with Bryce McGowan's. Yeah. Uh, that's someone who I just feel like is, he, he had some really interesting three-point shot making versus the Cavs. So it's not even the game that he's just coming off of. And then he, sh I'm not sure that like some of the flashier passes he tries will ever actually mean anything. They sort of feel empty, but he was, you know, uh, in the game specifically against the Lakers, he was finding guys like while they were in space and knowing when to get the ball to them. I'm very, if, if the three point accuracy is real and I'm not saying it's this high end, uh, because I know he shot sub 28%, I believe in school. I think that's like a real rotation NBA player to have gotten so there. I'll push you back a little bit on that because you brought up the quote earlier about, you know, summer league is for guys who can create their own shot and are, and are buckets in that regard. Like the consistency of he, of like Blake Wesley for San Antonio, who's had some really good flashes and then he goes three for 20 in the next game. You know, McGowan's two really good games, one that's pretty down. Jaden Hardy for Dallas, really good aggressive scoring effort. Still a lot to be desired in terms of the playmaking polish and the decision-making. Like all of these guys that can get buckets have proven at the very least that they can still get buckets on an NBA court surrounded by NBA type of athleticism. The question is, can they refine their game to become consistent? And that really, it's going to depend on the aspirations of the team that you play for, for how long your leash is to be able to play through some of those minutes. You know, if Charlotte is pushing for the seven or eight seed in the Eastern Conference, and that's their goal for next year, I would imagine McGowan's leash is a little bit shorter, even with the flashes that he's able to show. That's why you know, Book Knight didn't play much for them last year. Similar type of player. Even I love his game, but just not as reliable as a rookie because he's going to have some great nights and then he's going to have some donuts. Blake Wesley for San Antonio, probably going to have the longest leash out of any of those guys to play through it because of the team's aspirations right now. So when we're looking at all these guys, like it's awesome that McGallans is playing well. I really, really liked him as a first-round talent, a guy that can definitely score. There's just a long way between where he is now and the consistency for a, a nightly basis to be re relied upon in that role. The only thing I disagree with is that the Hornets are going for the nine or 10 seed. That seven or eight is a little bit too aspirational for them. And I'm also worried that Blake Wesley slash Malachi Branham are going to give coach pop a heart attack next season. Yeah. My last player is more plug and play though. Uh, Keon Ellis just had some very nice off ball relocation moment moments. And even just as someone who, kept the ball moving and was making quicker decisions, like just had some nice swing passes and kickouts. Just someone I'm sort of monitoring fits the the motif of the Kings is fuck ton of shooting though. That's for sure. Dan, can we record this part and show it to the players on my team that are coming in next year? As long as you can shoot the ball and defend, you can play right away. Thank you. Uh, maybe name drop someone who's a little bit more well-known than Keon Ellis, because that might imagine giving the motivational speech, like you want to be the next Keon Ellis. Like that's, you want to monitor that might not resonate as much. I'll, I'll draw that one up in a huddle. Right. Yeah. Um, which second or third year players have stood out, uh, the most to you and why is Quentin Grimes the, the most impressive of that bunch? You Knicks fan. I love you. Uh, Quentin Grimes, he's probably the best player in summer league, to be honest with you this year. Like, Incredibly impressive, polished, efficient, knows exactly when to pick his spots, physical, great. Uh, watching the Knicks, their defense was great so far this summer league. From what I like, everybody's applying pressure on the basketball. Their rim protectors are sound. Like, I love Jericho Sims, love, love, love Jericho Sims. But Grimes is incredibly impressive and I think is primed for a rotation role with the Knicks this year. Like, Josh Giddy, obviously, we know he's an incredibly talented player. He hasn't shot the ball well in summer league. That was an area of improvement that everybody was looking to see. But I'm convinced he's, he's grown, by the way. I'm just convinced. he looks. He's, just, he's clearly too good to be on the floor in a lot of these games. Um, just his playmaking, his feel is absurd. And then Moses Moody, 
or Moody, Moody Moses, depending on who you ask. Uh, <laughs> he is he is the real deal. He's primed to move into a, a rotation role for the Warriors, which is a little bit of a cheat code. I know you and I were texting back and forth on Golden State. Like that's absurd how how many good young players and role players they have on their roster. And then Trey Murphy for New Orleans. I, I also like the growth that he's shown off the bounce a little bit. You did steal two of mine, and we'll get into Trey Murphy the third is the impetus for one of the many impetus for a question that's coming up. Um, I'm in love with Quentin Grimes, and I think that you could argue there's a chance that he's like the th- the fourth most important Nick next season because you need another perimeter defender other than R.J. Barrett right now. And I'm I'm in love with Quentin Grimes. We'll see if he gets moved for Donovan Mitchell or someone else at this point. Um, I have my own players here too. How's that for actually doing uh, prep? Um, no, wait, I don't have my own players here. I already gave them to you. That was my. I'm sorry. That was my. Those were my rookies that I popped out there. So the next thing I want to get, the next thing I want to get to the baby warriors since you since you brought them up, like you, what were your impressions of seeing like what we saw from Kaminga? So not just Kaminga, but Wiseman so far, um, him coming back. Kaminga, you already mentioned Moody, and it doesn't really look like the Warriors are now going to successfully straddle these two separate timelines. Yeah, I, so like I was impressed by Wiseman just in terms of his comfort level and his confidence. He moved really well. There's still a lot of instinct stuff to clean up that we always say it takes a big man about two years to learn to adjust to the NBA level. We've seen that from time to time for young teenagers. When they come in, their first two years are really learning how to do the job. Years three and four, they can do it successfully. Wiseman lost his first two years in the league. So it's it's a crapshoot to know how long it's going to take, how much he's already you know caught on just by going through practices and film sessions and workouts. But just the raw flashes that he's shown are – it's unfair that the Warriors can have one of these guys that can just come off the bench and play a couple of minutes only if they want to have him do that. Like, it's it's insane. Um, I, I, I still believe in Wiseman. I just think there's no way to appropriately predict what his role can or should be. Uh, Kaminga is definitely forcing, right? A lot of these guys that come out here – Summer League's a great experimental time to put the ball in the hands of a non-traditional playmaker and see if they can ever turn into a traditional playmaker or somebody that becomes more of a focal point of your offense. And like, uh, forget which other team I was, I was going to reference. There was another one that ended up just saying, Hey, we're going to give the ball to, to this guy. Oh, it was uh, Memphis with Zaire Williams in the uh, summer league out there in Utah. Like he basically ran point and that's not his role next to John Morant. That's not his role on the team, but they want to see if he can evolve into that eventually. I think Golden State went out there and said, hey, Kaminga, like, why don't you go out there and score as much as you can? And, and he took that to heart, let me tell you. Uh, he, he got a lot of shots up. Wasn't great with him, but he got a lot of shots up. And, look, we've seen what he can do within the role that he's scalable to. I think the efficiency will come along. He's getting better. But when I look at a team that just is coming off of a championship and has three guys in the first two years of the league that are Wiseman, Kaminga, and Mooses, Modi, Modi, Mooses, man, that's a lot of riches to be able to play with either to round out your rotation or that are attractive trade pieces to somebody else if you feel like you need more of a veteran eventually. I just, they've navigated this so well. It it didn't look that way for like a three-month period, maybe a year ago. They've navigated all of this really well. You know Joey Lightyears was touching himself to the Kamingo Wiseman pick and roll that worked out. I think it was Wiseman's debut game. Uh, who among those three, who do you, and by the way, this, he's not, doesn't belong in here, but like Jordan Poole's only entering year four too. It's like, that's how there's like, so they're just covered from so many different ends of the spectrum. You still need, I would argue at least one of them to turn into a mega star. And I think Kaminga is still your best shot there, but looking at next season, what the Warriors have done this year, who among those three do you think is mo- most important or do you expect to play the, the biggest role? I think probably, probably Moody. Um, because, you know, again, kids remember if you can knock down threes and defend at a high level, you can play early in your career too. Um, I just, that's the pathway for me. I I think that he finds a way to be, uh, both filling a need for the warriors, which is another wing on their roster that can come in and play a little bit. And I I think with Kaminga, we're just not going to see that giant of a step forward from year one and year two. Like we have seen a little bit more with, with Moody's confidence. Even uh, even post uh, EJ Liddell's ACL injury, I'm getting pretty close 
to saying some dangerously, recklessly, drunkenly optimistic things about next year's Pelicans. And Trey Murphy III is a big part of that. Do you need to talk me off this ledge, or have you already joined me out on it? Uh, Dan, I have harnessed up, and I am ready to untie the ropes from the carabiner and just jump off the gorge. Like th- this is this is a really good team in the Western Conference, and like Zion, Ingram, and McCollum. I always talk about your big three, your three pillars for a team. That's a really good offensive trio to have. Uh, they've got a ton of really good role players. You know, whether it's the big guys that they can plug and play based on different lineups and, and opponents. Herb Jones, Jose Alvarado, Trey Murphy, like the list goes on and on about guys that just fit in around the core. I I do have two concerns. One is the health of Zion and and his integration process back into the lineup. The second is what do they do with the five? I I still don't see the clear answer for New Orleans in late game situations or in, in a playoff series. Do they go with Valanchunas there and now like he and... Zion's kind of a funky spacing duo. Do you go with Jackson Hayes and have more of that, you know, rim rolling guy? Like, I I don't know if I see that either. Is Zion going to be somebody that plays the five? Do you trust Herb Jones in that role? Is Larry Nance, like if he's playing the five, is I think that's my pick is Zion Nance to close games. It's probably my pick too in terms of fit, but it's like, are you really going to play Larry Nance and then leave Herb Jones and Jonas Valanciunas on the bench, like talent wise? Like, I, I don't, I don't think that there's a very clear cut answer for what they should do. And that's the one area for me as I'm looking forward, like obviously I want to see if Zion's healthy and it's the same old Zion. Everybody's always wondering the same thing there, but I think that they need a little bit more definable of a presence up front, just in terms of the hierarchy, not in terms of, like, I don't think Jonas is good. I do think he's good. I just struggle to see the fit with him and Zion based on the spacing that Zion needs. Yeah, Pelicans fans who listen to this podcast have been adamant that he's a better fit, uh, Jonas Valanciunas, next to uh, Zion than Miles Turner would be. Uh, that's something I still disagree with, yeah. but Valanciunas was really good last year. And I think for the time being, you, they're pro- it's more workable, I feel like, where if you went... Like, why can't Herb Jones play with Zion and Larry Nance Jr.? And then you go point guardless with CJ and Brandon Ingram because you have so many creators there. I think long term, like depending on how you feel about Jose Alvarado, Trey Murphy the third, and then yes, you are. I mean, Alan Tunis is making he's not even making Mitchell Robinson money right now, actually. So like you can justify not playing him because those decisions probably get tough, and I'm sure they're matchup dependent. But I want to see Trey Murphy the third on the floor all the time. And it's hard to do that right now, like in a closing unit. Um, and I'm just the way he closed the season and knowing that Zion was going to be healthy, how CJ McCollum and Brandon Ingram were eventually integrated. Just knowing what Herb Jones did, having Jose Alvarado, Devonte Graham can probably only get better. Uh, this team, I am not, I like, I think my, one of my preseason predictions is that if Zion plays in 60 plus games, the Pelicans are going to be a four seed. And that's going to sound outlandish to people knowing that the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Warriors, the Suns all exist. Uh, I don't know, man, this team. They really put it together after their terrible start. Uh, kudos to Willie Green for the way he was able to coach them up on defense, especially in transition. I'm I'm all in on the Pelicans. And that's like not really spicy because Zion Williamson is transcendent when he's healthy. But given where they were at the start of last season, to make that progression to where I think that they're closer to contention than the eight seed, let's say, that's a hell of a jump, even if it's just like conceptual at this point to make. Do you, do you smell that, Dan? It, it it smells like a consolidation trade with some of their younger role players eventually. I don't I don't know. I want Kevin Durant in New Orleans. Uh, I would love it even more if you could do it if if the Nets just wanted picks and you could keep Brandon Ingram since you have the salary matching tools to do it. I just don't know what is the p- type. Let's throw Kevin Durant out the window here. What is the archetype of player you'd be looking for in a consolidation trade though? That's what's interesting about this team is because they're almost at the and I'm higher on their outlook than I was the Hawks, but it's a little Hawksian where it's like, well, they kind of have all these guys like at all these different positions. It's like, what are you consolidating into? Yep. Yeah. And I don't have the direct answer for that. Like I, there's only one of them in the world, but like an elite stretch five, like Carl Anthony towns, obviously Minnesota's not going to do that deal, but um, yeah, maybe that's just what upgrades this roster a little bit more. I don't know. Uh, but I just I, I look at all those pieces and I say like, 
that's that's a sneaky team that could get involved with another star if uh, if something happened. Like if I don't know. Um, I have a name. I just don't want to say it because I love the fan base and how passionate they are. And if any of them are listening, they're going to tell me to fuck off. uh But Pascal Siakam on the. That's exactly what I was going to say too. Yeah. So they're going to say, stop voyeuring. This is voyeurism. Let us keep Pascal Siakam. I love Siakam. You you damn Americans. (laughs) Uh, So getting into this, which team's young core of, and this isn't, these aren't the only young cores out there, but looking at Detroit, Orlando, OKC, um, Houston, and even San Antonio now, because I'm a sucker for Josh Primo, who's another player. I think you mentioned him in your second year, uh, guys. Maybe I meant to mention him too, but I love Josh Primo. Which of those young cores sort of excite you the most leading into, leading into just next season? Not even if you want to take a big picture, sure, but leading into next season. Yeah, so Detroit, Oklahoma City, Orlando, and Houston are a year farther along in their rebuild than San Antonio. So I, I think we got to push them aside a little bit because they haven't assembled enough of the talent. They've got more future – I mean, Oklahoma City is more future picks than I have follicles of hair on my head. But, uh, like, San Antonio is just not quite ready to be in this discussion. I, I, I don't think – I like a lot of their young guys. They still don't have the guy offensively. Um, of the other four, I, I really like all of them. I said it earlier. I think Cade Cunningham's the best player of the last couple drafts. So for me, like I have to go with Detroit because they have the tentpole star out of this group. And I love Ivy and Duran both next to them, uh, as a pick and roll partner. And it's easy to fill the rest of your roster around guys like that with shooters and, and veterans that can help you win games. I, I like what all four have done. I want to be very, very clear on that, but I think Detroit is the best player and a young core that will age and grow together to the point where this is the, the timeline's always going to sync up and it's easy to know what you need around these three guys in order to win games. Detroit would be my pick too, in large part because of Cade Cunningham. If you told me that OKC was open to you bolt Shea Gilgis Alexander and Chet Holmgren to the floor, and then you're looking at consolidation trades. And I'm still, I'm getting killed on TikTok, Instagram, and the podcast I published where I said they should join the Donovan Mitchell sweepstakes. Uh, a lot of Thunder fans have insisted that Josh Giddy is too high a price to pay, so you need to do the deal without him in it. And my response was, I know you have Jalen, the Jalen Williams is, I know you have Usman Jang, I know you have all these picks. That's not a deal that I anticipate getting done unless Josh Giddy's included. I'm not saying Donovan Mitchell has to be the guy. It's very close to being OKC for me because I think Shea Gilgis-Alexander is an all not an all-star caliber, an all-NBA caliber player already. It's just he plays a loaded position. And now you have Chet Holmgren there. And there are other interesting, Lou Dort. Like, that's fantastic. And then you're not going to give up your entire young asset base. You're still going to have Darius Baisley. You're still going to have, um, you're still going to have Trey there. You're still going to have uh, one of the Williamses after that trade, or if not both of them still. So I, I'm close to wanting to choose them, but I think because of Cade Cunningham, Detroit, I think, Long-term, I'm the highest on. OKC or Orlando might be the core that fascinates me more because it's less clear what they turn into in sort of the most polarizing, fascinating, pleasantly fascinating way. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that Oklahoma City has the most unique roster build because of the future picks, because of the types of players that they've gotten. Like Chet is a quote-unquote positionless player. Uh, everyone's positionless. Screw off, but... Um, I think with Detroit, like I always go by the three pillars approach for me. You want to fill your number one option, your number two option, your number three option on your roster. And then you can start to figure out what you need around the margins to build a championship core of all the teams that we've talked about. I feel the most certain that Detroit has those three options. I think Kate is one Ivy is two. And I would put Sadiq Bay at three, knowing that Jalen Duran might eventually supplant him and turn into that. So like, I feel really comfortable knowing the hierarchy there. So now the direction moves forward of, okay, we've got those three. What do we build around them? Like, Orlando has their one in Paolo. I think Suggs eventually turns into a two. Yeah, a guy like Franz can can end up being the three there, maybe. Maybe it's Cole Anthony. Maybe it's, you know, I, I don't know. Oklahoma City, they've got Chet and, and SGA. I'm not quite sold on Giddy yet being good enough to, to deserve that just because of the scoring. Phenomenal playmaker. Really good size, fits who they are and what they do. Think that he can figure it out, but it's just a little early for me to jump in on saying, yeah, Giddy's not going to get played off the floor in an important playoff series. 
Um, fun fact about Josh Giddy: if you look, he looks like Zac Efron took off his bronzer in that movie. Uh, I don't even remember the name of it with Matthew Perry, where it's like seven, 13, 17 again. Is that the name of a movie? Uh, it might be. But I, I, if you look at Josh Giddy and view him as like a pale version of that, that's what, before he gets a haircut. That's just what I thought of. Um, anyway, I'm going to fold a question from longtime listener Miroslav Shook into this. He asked, who has the lowest BPM in summer league and how much weight do you ascribe to that? I don't publicly available BPM is not out for summer league and uh, I'm not going to calculate it. Uh, if you care, Malachi Branham is the like one of the most noteworthy picks with the worst plus minus. I would argue you throw all of this out the window, advanced metrics in summer league. Are there any players though to you that you were a little bit disappointed or were hoping to see more of in summer league that you know kind of missed your own expectations? Yeah, I try not to set too high of expectations for first-year guys just because I think that we're still trying to figure out how much of the expectation was you know, too high of an expectation on my part uh, versus what they can actually do on an NBA floor. So I, I look more at the second-year guys, people that I either was really high on pre-draft or just had higher expectations for them to come in and thrive in the role they were given. So RJ Hampton, for one. Uh, Sharif Cooper for another, like two guys that played more with the ball in their hands and were a little erratic, didn't score the ball efficiently. Like was really hoping that those second, I know Hampton's going into his third year now, uh, that those guys would be able to take another step forward and just show that they're ready to be depended upon more in a rotation. I'll also throw Santi Aldama out there for Memphis. Like he just, he looks like he doesn't have the ability to separate from guys. And if you can't do that in summer league, I, I struggle seeing that at the, you know, the real 82 game season that's upcoming. Um, minutes are going to be available in Memphis with Jaron Jackson Jr. injured for the beginning part of the season. I don't feel comfortable if I'm Memphis plugging Aldama into that role. And that's, you know, with as many young guys as they've hit on recently, that makes him a little bit expendable in ways that like, I just, I wasn't incredibly high on what we saw from him. Let's get to some other, my biggest disappointment and it's his playmaking has been fantastic. I was just hoping Jared Butler would shoot better than 12% from three yeah. in the, yeah. the action that he played. Uh, let's get to some other listener questions here. Some of which will step on the toes of what we just talked about. Uh, th that guy, Ty from discord asked twofold question. What are your thoughts on Ray John Tucker's chances of finding a roster spot this season? Sadly, it doesn't seem like it will be Milwaukee. Do you have any thoughts on Marjan Bochamp? Okay, Bucks. Um, yeah, Marjan, I think, fits really well culturally in Milwaukee. They needed a wing. They needed somebody that can come in and space the floor without sacrificing size, length, physicality, and defensive readiness. He checks those boxes for a team that's trying to compete for a title. This was a wise use of a first-round pick. If he shoots 35% from three or above, he's going to be able to find a way to fit into that rotation early in his career, and I think he's capable of doing so. Uh, again, I love that he embraces the defensive side, compared himself pre-draft to a guy like Herb Jones, and I think we see flashes of how he can turn into that. Um, Rajon Tucker, uh, he is like, there are like 50 guys to me who are caught in that nebulous of they're way too good for the G League, but they're not good enough to get minutes on an NBA team. So they get kind of pushed out every year by the younger draft picks at the team is already invested in like there, there's an old saying that I knew from when I coached college that even if a walk-on outplays a scholarship level player, the coach can't play the walk-on over the scholarship level player because it makes him look bad. Mm -hmm. You, you, you whiffed on that scholarship that you handed out because now a walk-on is better than that kid. It, it's kind of the same thing in the NBA, right? Like you don't want to admit that your second round pick, your first round pick that you took just isn't getting the job done and somebody that you can poach off of any roster in the G league is going to do a better job. So what happens? The draft picks stay on the roster and the G league guys just bounce around until they might find the absolute perfect situation. Rajon can find it, but um, I just, I don't have a lot of hope in, in those guys turning into career guys. It's not a bet that I would be willing to, to, to make. The only thing I'll add is on Marshawn Bochamp. The question was about his shooting. He looked very comfortable dotting yeah. up from the corners in summer league. And I'm wondering if maybe there's a chance for him to get some run early on when Chris Middleton might miss part of the regular season. Teams in the Bucks situation still probably normally wouldn't do that, including Coach Budenholzer of all. But I, I love Bochamp. T Bloom 117 asks, 
Who looks worse after that Cam Thomas interview, him or Steve Nash, and why is he Cam? I, I'm actually I'm I'm really glad that question's asked because I want to give the coaching perspective to things here. Like for what it's worth, I don't think that Cam Thomas was actually talking directly about the Steve Nash comment there. I think he just gets sick of hearing the same criticism or, or uh, improvement point that he's probably heard for much of the last three, four, five years, which is about his passing. Like nobody looks bad in this circumstance between Nash and him, but like I think both criticisms are fair. Like. Cam needs to not be a black hole and part of the summer league is working on parts of your game against competition that you haven't necessarily worked on. That should be part of his agenda. Nash needs to be a better coach. Yeah, he's, he struggles to kind of communicate and demand expectations clearly from the non-star players. I think that part of the reason he was brought in was to relate to guys like Kyrie and KD and not make the same mistake that Kenny Atkinson did, which was playing better younger guys over shitty veterans. Um, so like, if that's what Steve Nash is there for, of course he's not going to have the best command of the relationship with some of those younger guys. It's an area he needs to get better at too. But if that's what we're talking about, I think both criticism points would be fair, but I think this is much to do about nothing in terms of the, the clip that's circulating about Cam Thomas. I'm kind of with you and – I did watching that clip though. Like Cam Thomas's reaction is hysterical because it's so yeah. it's not even subtle. That's what was so that was what was so great about it for me. Uh, Keegan's. Oh, let me say who asked this question. So I'm just not spitting it. Strops asks. I know he's 25, but is Caleb Holmesley the next Donovan Mitchell? No. We can move on. You can't elaborate on that. Well, is he? Are you saying that he's going to be better than Donovan Mitchell? <laughs> I guess I did leave the door open for that one, didn't I? Uh, no. Uh, I, I mean, I can't, Holmesley's fine. I think that he's more in the Rajon Tucker bounce around camp than he is a dependable rotation guy in the NBA. Next, next question. That was quick. Sweet Lou said, asked, more impressive, Keegan's three to tie it or Paolo's assist to win it? Oh yeah, that uh, that Kings Magic game was super fun in the final few minutes there. I mean, like the the Keegan play is impressive um, because it's hard to to hit a shot like that with the game on the line. But uh, I want long term to be able to remember Paolo's assist to win it and the playmaking because look, like in we're this is going to happen inevitably five months from now. We're going to have a few games where he has like six turnovers and goes six of eighteen from the field, and there's going to be so many people that are allowed to be like. I don't know, man. He's too selfish. He just wants to score first. Like, yeah, he's an okay passer early in the game, but when the game's on, he just wants to score. Like, no, cut that shit out. We just saw him make a game-winning assist. Don't forget this play. So in terms of the actual impressiveness, like I hope that that play impressed upon all of you that Paolo is a, a willing and unselfish passer. Uh, next question. JT Alexander asks, should I bet all of my money on Keegan Murray winning rookie of the year. Ooh, I'm not a betting guy. Uh, I've actually never put money down on an athletic event in my life. So I don't like understand odds very well and the numbers and the two to one, six to one on 20 to one. I don't, I don't get it, but I think Keegan's actually a fairly safe bet. I'd, I'd say Paolo's the clubhouse leader because I know opportunity, offensive reps and volume stats, which I mean, it still matters a lot in this, in this award and how it's decided is really important. Side, side note here, can we just talk about how the rookie of the year is, is really decided? Like, why does the success of the team really matter for an award like this anymore? I, I get that we want to reward winning and impact on winning that these young guys have, but we consistently value team performance for guys who were drafted into crappy situations to begin with. Like, at the end of the day, Scotty Barnes wins rookie of the year because guess what? Toronto's the best team of any of these candidates that were available. I, I just, I hope we can take that out of it a little bit more. I'd agree with you as Scotty Barnes was my rookie of the year pick still. And it didn't really yeah. have to Which do with fun. Yeah. Maybe people just have Michael Carter Williams, PTSD. Maybe. I, I mean, there's certainly a chance of that, but at the end of the day, like give the award to the guy who's earned it, not to the guy who you're worried is going to be a bust. If he plays on a better team in a couple of years. I do think, though, and this is always going to be the case, and I kind of understand it, the Rookie of the Year awards traditionally are going to skew towards guys who just, unless the class is super thin, who have the ball in their hands a lot more than I think Keegan Murray is going to end up having the ball in his hands with Sacramento. 
Yeah, no doubt. And look, if he shoots, you know, 38%, 39% from three, like he did at Iowa this year and averages 12 a game and the Kings win 39 games, he's going to have as good a shot as anybody. But again, my money's on Paolo just because I I think that he's, he's going to have a lot of volume. How does this comes from Ian Fowler? How does Jabari Walker stack up past second round picks who to get regular season minutes? I guess, do you expect him? He did get a guaranteed contract with the, the Blazers. Good for him. Yeah, I, I always I liked Jabari. I had him um, in like the early to mid 30s on my board, just outside of first round grade. Really like his game, what he brings to the table. Huge, huge, huge fan of his defense, and he understands and knows his role. For younger guys, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record here. If you come in and defend, and you can knock down shots right away, you can play too. That's what Jabari does. So uh, I, I like Jabari Walker quite a bit. This is you know. Premature question from Bemos Quo, but I like it. I dig it. Who are some of your biggest draft steals? His is, we already talked a little bit about Terry Eason. Do you have anyone that stands out either after Summer League that we even talked about or just heading into Summer League, like even throw that out the window that you saw on draft night? You're like, oh, that that's going to end up being a steal. I love Jaden Hardy. Um, I think Dallas got a steal with him just in terms of the value of where he was drafted. I think that... We're going to eventually look back at Jalen Williams as one of the six or seven best players in this draft class. Uh, The Jalen Williams from Santa Clara, not from Arkansas. Um, So again, still a lottery pick, but I don't know if you'd consider that a steal if you end up getting one of the foundational pieces of the team in the, in the teens. Um, You know, beyond that, I just think it's really early to be able to give a lot of those answers there. Like, you see flashes from a Bryce McGowan's. You see really solid play from Jabari Walker, who goes in the 50s, and guys that you think can be part of a rotation. Uh, time will tell. I think that uh, I think that Jaden Hardy has got to be my pick here. I mean, I've, I have no idea how he fell to a 36 in Dallas. Our last question, and this is a question that was designed specifically for you, comes from Haitian Mamba. Do you think that the new rule change with regard to the take foul will help teams who are mediocre to average at half-court offense, particularly in the playoffs where the game does slow down, especially as the postseason progresses into deeper rounds? And Uh-oh. I'm just going to ask, are you an overall fan of banning the take foul? Oh, Dan, you must have listened to or been on my podcast where we say hashtag ban the take foul to close every single episode. I cannot stand the take foul, and I have been championing for this for long over a year and it is finally here that we have one free throw in possession um look the instinct anytime you have dead ball is that it's going to reward teams who are better in the half court setting i think that there's still going to be it's not going to be eradicated from the game because there's going to be that risk reward of do i give up two points versus one in the chance to set up my defense and uh, what i think not necessarily needs to happen but what we need to see from this is a little bit more of a differentiation between like what's the difference between this and a clear path foul? I don't know. <laughs> that seems problematic. I was going to ask too if you thought the the rules were comprehensive enough in the sense that it I when looking at the language that they released, it still feels like you can disguise this as a play on the ball when even a lazy ass play on the ball like that stopping a fast break could still technically be a take foul. Yeah, I mean, like, Dan, I, I yell at referees for a living, so, like, I don't pretend to understand what exactly... Are you Jeff the, Van Gundy? Oh, no, I'm definitely not Jeff Van Gundy, but uh, I, I am shocked that I didn't get a T this year. I, I said some things I definitely should not have said on the sideline. But, um, no, I, 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 I think it's a fair point. I think there's a lot to continue to work out and iron out the kinks with this rule. But at the very least, I'm glad, glad they addressed it because doing nothing is a lot worse than doing something and having to figure out over the next couple of years how to best implement it. And so do you see it helping sort of below average offenses in the half court? Like not actually helping them in the half court, but helping the offense overall because you're, you should in theory be able to get more genuine transition frequency on your ledger. You should. Um, and I think it's a fair point. I think the other part of this too is like could do you think there's going to be more transition or do you think there's going to be less transition because what if this is always the law of unintended consequences right what if players look at this consequence and say like maybe it eliminates 
some, but not all of my uses of the take foul. And hey, I, like I said, I'll give up that one point, that one free throw that, that you might take here. And now I get to set up my defense. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in the sense, though, that attempting to do something, even if it's imperfect, is better than doing absolutely nothing. Uh, I, it's just it was borderline unwatchable at times. Like transition is the most enjoyable part of the game. I'm still a fan at heart. I just like watching good basketball. And look, if the NBA was really trying to pump up top shot, like they're ruining potential NFT mode moments or whatever those things are called. Um, the uh, the ritzy JPEGs as like or MP4s, like the. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I'm happy they at least are trying to address it. We'll see how it works uh, this season. I'm all for it. Already kept you long, five minutes longer than I wanted to. We were over an hour. Did you have anything else about summer league you wanted to talk about? Did you have any? I know I initially asked you about if you had any thoughts about Donovan Mitchell or DeAndre Ayton rumors. Did you want to get anything like that off your chest? Now is the time. Well, Dan, I'd like to take this moment to address the loyal, faithful listeners of the Hardwood Knox podcast with a general PSA and reminder about Summer League. Um, if a guy plays really well at Summer League, it is generally a good sign that you have somebody worth developing that can turn into a rotation caliber player when there are real minutes that come. But these are still really young players and guys that you have to be patient with. So just because you see star-making performances in the Summer League doesn't mean they're going to turn into that same type of player a few months from now. On is this the just because side, I brought up Bryce McGowan's before? No, this is this is a general PSA that goes out there to all listeners of the Hardwood Knox podcast. But I will say this. If a player doesn't do well in Summer League, don't panic. It's just Summer League. It doesn't really matter anyway. On that note, are you able to tell our listeners where they can find you on social media and all just the great work that you put out? Yeah, well, thank you again for having me, Dan. Always a blast sitting down and, and you know chopping it up here with you. Um, find me at the box and one underscore on Twitter, the box and one dot substack dot com is where you can find all of our written form pieces, scouting reports. We're doing some uh, previews ahead of the 2023 NBA draft, as well as a summer league review once everything wraps up in Vegas. And then the the YouTube channel is where you can find a lot of our work too. So if you find a YouTube, Twitter, Substack, you're hitting all of our points there. And uh, it's summer, so not posting or doing stuff as regularly as throughout the, the basketball season, but should have some fun previews ahead to some incoming freshmen for the 2023 NBA draft. For if there are any complete psycho nerds like me out there, uh, you can get a head start right now. I just need to reiterate everything he just said. The content the box and one does and spins specifically, absolutely fantastic, invaluable. You should be charging twice to three times as much for your sub stack. So go subscribe to that if you have not already. Thank you so much for coming on as always. You know I'll be pestering you again at this point in the future. And as you know, we have to leave everybody with a shout out to the one, the only, Frank Nielakina. <laughs>